collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. Barris is with us this morning, and uh, we're talking about housing systems, and Dr. Simbaris is a clinical psychologist who founded the Housing First program, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. So good morning, Dr. Simbaris. It's great having you with us. Great to be with you, Rita. So tell us a little bit about yourself. What got you into housing? Tell us a kind of a story that has us get a feel for you as an individual, as a person, but also has us understand why you became passionate about housing. This all started when homelessness started. You know, housing was totally tied to the idea of ending homelessness. And homelessness in the United States, you know, for people under 30, I think they've grown up with 30 years of homelessness. They think that homelessness is part of the landscape comes with every city. In the early 80s, there were huge federal that created homelessness. At that time, I was just finishing my studies at NYU. I went to NYU, a graduate school for psychology, and I was working at Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital. Both of those are on the east side of Manhattan. I was living in the East Village on 3rd Street, and I would walk to work to 29th Street at Bellevue Psychiatric Center. And then, you know, that was an easy commute. Mm-hmm. And I would be working on the inpatient service, learning, you know, about mental illness and the hospital systems and so on. And then on, as homelessness began to be more of an issue, and you'd hear it all about it on the radio, you'd begin to see people on the sidewalks living with their stuff on the street. It was a shock. It was a shock when it was first happening, not like now where we, have already trained ourselves to look the other way. Mm. We were like staring and looking and like, oh my God, how did this happen to this person? And sometimes the people that I saw on the street were the same people that I had met when I was working in the inpatient psychiatry unit at Bellevue. They had been discharged. They had no home. And it wasn't like, an abstraction or like, here's a homeless person. Here was Frank, you know, it's like, Mm. Frank, how did you get here? What happened? And so I became very intrigued in trying to help people like Frank figure out where can you go and what happened to you? How did you get hospitalized the first time? And why is it that you have no place to live? Well, my aunt died. She was living in a rent controlled apartment and I was living with her. She was taking care of me. Uh, I was working part-time, but once she died, the landlord took over the apartment. 
he was not on the lease. And there was at the time, huge real estate conversions, everything being turned into co-ops and condominiums. The real estate market was just beginning to heat up at that time. And people would lose the housing for hundreds of different reasons. This was just one example. And he had nowhere to go. Very sensitive, thoughtful person suffered with schizophrenia, a little bit afraid of people. The idea of going to some of the big shelters that were opening up at the time were, was inconceivable to him. He'd rather stay on the street and take his chances sleeping under the stairs of some of the buildings or in the doorways, you know, and trying to figure out his next move. So I stopped working at the inpatient service and there was a job available in New York City for directing an outreach program for the homeless mentally ill. And I was hooked, was just something that uh, spoke to me, was kind of uh, personal. And I felt there wasn't much work being done in homelessness. And um, it's sort of a never ending task. I thought we would be able to end it <laughs> by now, but here we are. It's actually gotten worse over the years rather than better. That's how I got started working with people who were mentally ill and homeless. And what year was that? That was 87, 88. So I'm curious about your personal motivation. Well, first of all, what did that feel like for you? And what had you say enough? Well, you know, in terms of personal motivation, I guess way back somewhere else, I was already being trained to be a psychologist. So the idea of caring for people, I think I was either uh, inducted into it by my own personal experience, or it just was something that uh, spoke to me, I guess. You know, I, I was, uh, I'm the firstborn in my family. So that comes with a certain kind of responsibility. My family is from Greece. I was born in Greece in a little village. And so like many immigrant families, when they move to a new country, when they move to America, we happen to move to Canada, but sort of America, you know, when you're in a village in Greece, it's all America. <laughs> but anyway, right. so we went to America, Montreal, and uh, the kids learn a language quicker than the parents, and they end up navigating life for the parents. You know, uh, how do you turn on the phone? And how do you, wh what's this lease about? And we got a notice from the school, read it to me. And so you're kind of like uh, playing a, a bit of a parent or a parentified child, I think is the term in the business, you know? Yes. And kind of like taking care. I had a younger sister. There were many other relatives that were coming over. So I kind of... Uh, was the go-to person in the family for uh, taking care of things, you know. I didn't really have an idea of a career when I was uh, studying. I studied literature, actually. I thought that was, I loved reading all these wonderful things. But then I couldn't explain what you do for a living to my father, who was in the restaurant business. Like, <laughs> what is literature about? So I I also studied psychology in college because that was something that uh, he could understand, oh, you can make a living this way. I love it. Thank you. So tell us about Housing First for folks who well, are house, not familiar uh, with it. Housing First, you know, there is like a wonderful, I, I started a program initially in New York, and then I started programs in several other cities. I started one in Washington, D.C. in 2003. 
in 2009, I started the Pathways to Housing program in Philadelphia that uh, is there and doing very well today, run by a wonderful director named uh, Chris Simariglia. And then I started one in uh, Burlington, Vermont as well. So the Housing First program, I think of it as a, as a kind of a remedy to business as usual. So what is business as usual, you might ask, in the homeless sector? Well, business as usual in the homeless sector is if you think about people who are on the street, like the person I was describing, you know, Frank, or, you know, 70% or better of the street homeless population is male. So you have people on the street and their options, if there is no Housing First program, is to go to a shelter, to get cleaned up, to get sober, to take medication if they have a mental illness, and to demonstrate to housing providers that they are ready for housing. This is a very misguided systemic approach in homelessness because you have people with multiple problems, addiction, mental illness, and homelessness. Now, you know, and I know, we have not cured mental illness or addiction. That's something we try and do the best we can with, and people do get these illnesses and get better, but it's not a quick or easy fix. And it's certainly not a quick or easy fix when the person is homeless at the same time. And yet we've set up the system that we insist that people cure their addiction and mental illness before we'll give them housing. You know, kind of using housing as a reward. That's right. Something they have to earn. And some people, amazingly enough, about 40% can manage that. Keep the sobriety, comply with the medication to get into housing. But many more don't. And for those that don't, that's what Housing First was invented for. You know, when I was uh, working with this group of people and I would say, look, we can go to the shelter. We have a van. We can take you there. It's like, I don't want to go. Or they would go and then they would get kicked out because they would relapse. They would come in. They had been using, you know, you, you, you get kicked out of the programs if you relapse. And it was really in conversations with the people that kept failing that system. You know, we called it the stairway because you had to kind of like the stairway system was you had to climb up the stairs and housing was at the very top step. And many people would climb three or four steps and fall down back to zero or five, six and back down. Into, and then it just kept. So the people that were falling off the stairs are the people that we gravitated towards and said, look, they were telling us, we don't want to try this again. It's not working for us. Can we do something else? Can you give us a place to live first? And then we can get our act together. That's the most urgent need. I'm not thinking all day about where can I get treated? Where can I get some food? What am I going to do tonight? If I leave my stuff here, is it going to be stolen? Who can I trust? Entire life energy of homelessness is exhausting, expensive. You have to buy food can't no fridge you know it's demoralizing it's also dangerous you know, people get arrested people get beaten up you know they get victimized much more than the general population it's a war zone for being homeless yeah i'm also yeah. going to add something if you don't mind um like there's an extremely regimented life when you live in a shelter right? Like you have to be up by a certain hour. You have to be closed. You have to be asleep at a second hour. You can't eat in your room. You can't bring any food in the room. You have to eat in the lunch area. 
you yeah, have to you leave have the to shelter leave. in the morning, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, you're out there, yeah. you're supposed to be doing something. It's only open at night. And yeah, it's a it's, very it's, uh, institutionally guided, forced environment. Like it's not comfortable. I think one of the misperceptions around shelters for people who have never been in a shelter and never been homeless is that, oh, well, they get a house for free. What else do they want? As if it's comfortable. It's actually designed to not be comfortable. Like there's no colors in the space. Like if you walk into a shelter, most of them are extremely bare, you know, hard chairs, <laughs> no couch in front of the also, TV. It's like intended for you to not get comfortable. Totally intended not to get comfortable. And they have these metal cots, not even a mattress, many of them, just like a canvas uh, tied to the metal frames. And there's a whole struggle about just keeping people a few feet apart because they tend to just cluster those cots. You're sleeping mm -hmm. immediately next to strangers on each side of you. I mean, one of the strangely positive revelations of the coronavirus is that it has demonstrated the uselessness and the public health hazard <clears throat> of shelters. They have moved people into hotels or motels or somewhere where people can be staying in individual units and helping to stay clean and not infect others. The whole covering of the dysfunction of the homeless system has been exposed big time during this pandemic in a way that we've been talking about for years in Housing First, because Housing First is person is homeless, and typically they have more than homelessness. It's not for every homeless person, although it can be if we were willing to pay for it, because it's basically giving people a home. But it's mostly for people who are considered highly vulnerable, they have mental illness, health problems, or addiction, and they get an apartment of their own and a team that visits them to take care of all of their health and social issues. So, so that's housing first. So pause for a second. Thank you for that. And I want to say a little bit more about business as usual, as I've experienced it. And I think I've shared this with you prior. So I was the evaluator for a welfare to work program that was intended to have mothers reunite with their children. And this was like years and years ago, but it still gives a sense of how it was kind of business as usual. So we only gave housing vouchers to a third of the parents who actually needed them. And that was because we had specific criteria for what you needed to do to get vouchers. Now, the explicit rationale was, well, if you don't meet these criteria, if you don't get come to this program every day, if you don't attend your lessons, if you don't uh, go to sessions with your therapist, if you don't like, if you don't do this whole plethora of criteria, that we can't ensure you're going to be a good neighbor. And since with housing vouchers, you can go in any neighborhood, it's not public housing, right? With a housing voucher, you can, you can go live in the burbs. We have to ensure that you're a good neighbor before we give you a voucher. So that was the rationale. But what was interesting in this welfare to work program, so two thirds of people who needed vouchers didn't get them. We completed the program after four years with an excess in vouchers. So we had more than we actually gave out, which is insane because Philly had closed its housing voucher application in 2000. So there was no way to get a voucher in Philadelphia unless you went through a program, right? So we had, you have to think about housing vouchers like, you know, like platinum blocks or gold blocks. Like it was this really, really precious thing. Yes. And yet we had left over. We didn't use them all. To then discover that the people who did get employed 
which I'm trying to remember what percentage that was, a third. So kind of where you were saying 40%. So we were at a third. The people who did get, out of the people who got work, those who got housing vouchers were able to stay employed over a certain, like at twice the rate of people who didn't get housing. So basically, if you take the people who got work, housing still became a liability. And so the folks who didn't get housing ended up without work shortly thereafter. And supposedly because they're, you know, the housing, the lack of housing had them also lose their job. Yeah. So in this case, we're, we're talking about people who are definitely trauma survivors. I, I mean, I later found out that most folks were trauma survivors. I didn't have a lens for trauma in uh, whatever this was, 2001. It just gives you an idea, like we reward people with the very criteria that would actually set at the foundation would allow them to spring up. And then for the ones who don't get the reward, we blame them. Right. It's their fault. It's their fault. Right. As opposed to, no, I was living on the street and trying to go to a job interview at the same time. Right. Yeah. Or I was staying yeah. at a friend's house and I got into a fight with them. And she put me out. So I wasn't able to take a shower yeah. before I went to my interview or whatever are, other kind of precariousness. These are exactly the kinds of uh, labeling that we do. And you referenced one of it earlier with the homeless population. It's like, oh, this person's on the street because they want to be. Because, you know, if they didn't want to stay on the street, they would have gone to the shelter. They're choosing to stay homeless. Well, they're choosing to stay homeless is true. But because the shelter is too frightening for them, they would not choose to stay homeless if they had a viable option. Or they say, well, why don't this person get their treatment resistant? Well, the person doesn't see treatment as their priority. They see survival and housing as their priority. But they don't say, oh, our program is so narrow-minded that it insists on treatment before housing. They say there's a problem with this person. That goes back to, you know, like when Freud, <laughs> business, in that case of Anna O, some lecherous old guy kissed Anna, and she was talking about her repulsion of that in the session with Freud. And Freud says, oh, you must have enjoyed it secretly. It's just repression, you know. <laughs> No, it's not. I hate it. And, you know, he disagreed with her. And rather than accept her experience, he started calling it resistance, you know, mm. and the patient's resistance to his noble interpretation. Which is that any kiss by any man should be appreciated at any time by to any right. woman. Because Freud said so. Yeah. And if people don't agree with it, it's a power structure. And there's something about poverty in all of this because we would not treat people the same way or hold the same biases and prejudices if people were paying customers. It's because people are very, very poor, and these are public services that we have culturally misguided beliefs about treatment. We have a lot of prejudice about poverty, believing that in America, if you, and this is the myth that's perpetuated all the time, it's going yep. to come up again in the elections. If you work harder, just pull up your boots, you're going to get somewhere. And this is like from, you know, the billionaire who's president and inherited all his money from his father. Exactly. You know, laziness and resistance and a lot of bias around poverty. Yeah. And uh, one of the things I found in my research that confirms kind of what you're saying and points out the origin of it. 
Andrew Billingsley wrote a book called Children of the Storm on the history of the African-American foster care system. And what he says in there is that when America adopted the English poor laws, which in England were created in 1601, and that stated that the common public had a responsibility for the poor, like that's what the English poor laws did, what we did was we adopted them without the clause of we're responsible for the poor. So there are a number of other things, you know, like the poor get closed up in almshouses or, you know, all the things that we used to do. They had pauper's prison in England. Exactly, right? Well, the English poor laws, I think, tried to end that. So they said there is a common responsibility for the poor. So we took some of those laws, but picked and chose, and mainly the assumption for removing the law that said we were responsible for the poor is that the assumption was, well, we're in America, there's all this free land, of course, completely dismissing Native Americans and it being their land, right? Completely dismissing the Native American genocide. And you're saying, well, there's all this land, therefore, if you're poor in America, it will have to be because of, like, your own lacking. Right. Lack of character, not lack of cash. Yes, exactly. And so that underlies our whole system, like that assumption. And what it does is the huge blind spot of that is kind of the Native American genocide and slavery, which are actually the source of our poverty. Let me give you an example of the application of exactly that kind of thinking during the recent Bloomberg administration in New York. Mm -hmm. And he was working, this was a program for homeless families And families is loosely used as a term because there are some single parent dads with children, maybe 7%, but about 93% of homeless families are single parent moms with two kids. You know, the mom's about 35 to 40 and the kids are like from eight to 12. You said 90%? Yeah. Oh, wow. Women, single parent moms. Bloomberg, another billionaire, self-made, this guy, you have to give him credit for that is all about you have to work harder. So he started this program called Rent Advantage because there were 50,000 people in the New York City shelter system and he was trying to get people out of the shelter. He didn't give them a voucher like the voucher you described. He gave them something called Rent Advantage, which is that he promised the families that they would uh, have their rent over a five-year period, they would have their rent paid for. 80% of the rent in the first year, 60 in the second, 40 in the third, 20, and then zero, right? So each year, there was an incremental drop in the city's contribution to their rent. Mm. So in the first year, the program was very popular, 80%, you know, a lot of the moms felt like they could manage that, you know, with either a part-time job or their welfare check, because, you know, they have to watch their kids, can't go to work. The most frequently given reason for the moms showing up in the shelters, by the way, was that their kid got sick. They were like between a rock and a hard place, like take off work, take care of your kid, lose your job, or you pay the doctor's bill, you don't have money for your rent, you know, we're talking poverty. So the first year, many families left and stayed when the rent was 80%. When it was 60%, it was a real struggle. And some of the families began to come back. And then when went to the third year, 40% of the rent only contributed. All the families who had left the program came back and went back into the shelter system. 
because Bloomberg and the brilliant MBA staff thought, oh, these poor people, you know, will somehow get out of poverty in two years. There's been like generational poverty. Oh, yeah. You just get bigger. And it's like two years that that should be enough time. They don't want to spend too much money or make it too easy for them to have a free ride. You know, this goes back to uh, Reagan's and the uh, welfare queens, you know, and all of the kind of uh, coded language, you know, racist coded language about people of poverty. I want to add one piece before we shift gears, and that's that you talked about the political outlook. And so another piece of the political outlook is that folks who experience any type of homelessness or poverty or recovery, for that matter, be it mental health or addiction, are defective, right? So that's why I have to, in my book, I call it a Santa Claus complex. That's why the system has to sift. It has to sift the naughty from the nice, and then the nice get the housing and the naughty, oh, well, screw you, you're defective. Right. Like that's the assumption underneath our system. And I would argue that most of our systems don't actually help. What they do is sift. They mm-hmm. sift people they think are deserving of their help. Right. And so we're always going for the low-hanging fruit most of the time. Right. But the term in the homeless business for what you call sifting, we call creaming. Ooh, you know, say more. Yeah, you know how the cream rises on top of the milk and it's like the people who are most compliant, the people that know how to game the system the best, maybe the people that actually need the help least are the ones that are getting the help most. And the people that are like really disoriented and out of it and need the help most are not going to rise to the top because they need to do things their own way at their own pace. And we don't like that. We have an idea of how quickly people should be moving in and how fast they should be getting better and how quickly we discharge them because we don't want them on the dole too much. One of the things that might be a little bit surprising about Housing First is that I want you to imagine the person that you've seen on the street that got all of their plastic bags next to them and they're muttering to themselves and they don't really look like they're in very good shape at all, okay? And I think that someone just passing by that person on the sidewalk would think this person needs help. Everyone would agree this person needs help, but they would never think that a person like this would be able to manage in an apartment of their own. If you took this person and brought them to their own apartment, really, they could manage with all of that and all of this psychological stuff going on? And the answer is absolutely yes. The success of the Housing First program in terms of housing stability ranges between 80 and 90% stably housed. People get housed and stay housed. And this is not like anecdotal. This is in randomized control trials of hundreds and hundreds of people. So what we don't see on that quick walk by when we're mostly looking to avert our eyes is that that person knows exactly where the soup kitchen is, what time it's open, where they can keep their stuff without being stolen. They know where to go to stay safe and not get arrested. They know which bus routes they can use to go to get their benefits checked once a month if they're collecting at, they're actually living an entire life on the street like that. And you don't see the resourcefulness because mostly we see them sitting still at that moment, but by virtue of their presence and months and months of that presence is how are they surviving? Well, they're surviving because they have a lot more resourcefulness, creativity and determination than we ever give them credit for. So that person now in an apartment 
and you don't have to walk three blocks to the store to use the toilet or another two blocks the other way to wash your hands afterwards. Having an apartment is like the easiest thing in the world. It just makes life immediately much safer, much more comfortable. We have been trying to persuade policymakers of this very fact. And suddenly here comes the novel coronavirus. And it's like, hey, get these people off the street, put them into apartment. There's no question they can manage an apartment or a hotel room. How did that happen? And you're... Result is that not only are they likely to succeed, but between 80 and 90% are able to be housed and, stay housed and stay housed. You know, it's a randomized control trial, right? So it was housing first compared to that stairway model, you know, get clean and sober before housing. You would think those people would do great because they have to be like totally together before housing. Yeah. 40%. And then we were talking about COVID. So we've heard for years or decades, there isn't enough money, there isn't enough money. Then COVID happens and you were saying people's responses are get people off the street, right? right. First of all, I, one piece I want to add to the picture before we go in that direction, because we're going to come back there because that's really important. I feel like, I wrote this in, the, in my book, the middle and upper class have this tremendous contradiction in how we look at poverty. On one hand, poverty is the thing we're most scared of. It's the thing we'll take four jobs to avoid, right? Like even when we're well out of the poverty zone. It's the thing that we will give up any free time with our children to avoid because we're terrified. But when it comes to policy, we treat poverty like it's a vacation. Like, oh yeah, that person's just getting a free ride. Like the no. life you just described of a homeless person having to walk four blocks to go to the bathroom, then come back and walk across the city to go to the soup kitchen to get their meal, right? And then maybe somewhere else walk, I don't know how many other miles because there's a bridge where there's no one else and they feel safe underneath it. Or, you know, whatever the different things, like homeless people walk a ton. I love that you brought that up actually. That is not a vacation. Like struggling for your next meal is not a vacation. We don't have to make it bad for folks. It already is horrific. And our policies assume, oh, I can't make comfort too easy for you. I can't make it easy for you. Well, you know, there's nothing easy about poverty, right? So shifting gears around, so you talked about the results of housing first. I'd like to hear more kind of, you talked about having had created programs across the country. You talked about Pathways in Philly a little bit, and they have some of their data on their website, which confirms what you're saying, right? So 80, 85, based on their website, 85% of those who were previously chronically homeless retain their housing for more than five years, which is a great number, right? It's not just that you got housing one year. You stay housed. Right. It's all about the retention. Beautiful. I'll tell you some other things I've learned along the way about, first of all, I guess the big one is that people are much more capable than we imagine if we give them the right opportunities. Mm. Very much the same kinds of biases occur, especially with severe addiction. The idea that drug use is a party that people are using to get high because it's fun completely misses the misery and the uh, kind of drivenness 
for the next fix that addicts go through endlessly tortured, never even getting to the trauma that created the addiction in the first place. And a lot of these housing programs, not housing first, but the housing eventually programs are really, really resistant to having people who are actively using in their homes so that there's a lot of effort made to have people quit before they get into housing. That was one of the criteria we excluded people based on. If the city of Philadelphia had a policy that said, in order for you to sign a lease as a renter in any apartment in in the city of Philadelphia, you have to be clean and sober for six months prior to the signing of this lease. And you have to promise to stay clean and sober once you're in the housing. How many homeless people do you think we would have in Philadelphia? But we hold people who are actually addicted and desperate to a standard that most of us would never be able to meet. What happens in Housing First is that once people are housed, they're actually using less. They start to use less, not because we insist on it. The program has some requirements. You have to live up to the terms and conditions of a standard lease. And if you have a disability check or any other form of income, you have to pay 30% of your income towards the rent. And you have to accept home visits by the team because we're not going to put someone in an apartment who's mentally ill and addicted and just like, you know, good luck. I mean, what creates the housing stability we're talking about is these constant visits and support. So there's a network. There's a network and there's a tremendous amount of support. And it's not mandatory treatment kind of support. It's like, how can I help you support? People start using less because when they're on the street, they buy a, a flask of vodka. They have to drink the whole thing. There's nowhere to put it, right? Now they buy a flask of vodka and they're in their apartment. They have a shot or two while they're watching their TV and they put the rest in the freezer like the rest of us do. And like their use and abuse of drugs and alcohol goes down because their life is more comfortable and they don't have to knock themselves into oblivion to fall asleep on the street. Wow. Kind of just evolves organically, you might Mm. say. Thank you for that image. I think it was really strong. It really hit home for me. Yeah, I got to finish the vodka all at once because otherwise someone's going to steal it and then it's going to be wasted. And it took me all this time to be able to find the money to actually be able to buy it. Tell us more kind of, well, there are two places where I'd like to go in this conversation. I'm just going to lay them both on you and where we go first. I'll leave it up to you. One is like, what are one, like what can people do? What can folks do? How do we leverage our collective power in the fight against homelessness? Let's go there first, actually. Okay. I think knowledge is political. What we lack, what we lack to solve homelessness, what we lack to solve lack of affordable housing, what we lack to solve a living wage, not a minimum wage, what we lack to address the income disparity in the United States, which is bigger than any of the other so-called Western countries, certainly much bigger in Canada, much bigger in Europe, Australia, New Zealand. And not surprisingly, the number of people who are homeless in those countries are fewer per capita than they are in the United States. Because when you look at it worldwide, it turns out that the greater the income disparity, the more homeless people there are and the fewer services for them there are. Fewer mental health services, fewer housing services. 
just like we found out with the no safety net that we have right now trying to deal with the pandemic. I think people's awareness, knowing that there's a, a solution to homelessness that is highly effective. And you mentioned earlier about the money. It's just as expensive to have somebody on the street than it is to put them in a housing first program. Because somebody on the street will get injured or will get sick. They'll go to the emergency room. They'll go to the inpatient service. You know, three weeks in the inpatient service at $2,000 a day is $40,000 is almost two years of rent and support services. And so we are, as a city, spending as much, if not more, to have people stay on the street and remain homeless than we are to put them in a program that would actually house them and keep them safe and put them back in the community with the rest of us. So I think advocacy is something people can do. I think it'd be really, really good if we stopped listening to what politicians or other people are saying about don't give people money and don't talk to them. There's a terrible loneliness. There's a terrible sense of isolation, of otherness in being homeless. We're getting a little glimpse of that now when we're walking around with these masks. We're supposed to all treat each other like we have the virus. Some people actually sort of start to inhabit the role and they start looking at you like you really do have the virus. It's like, no, no, we're just pretending, you know, like. Oh, God, thank you so much for saying that. It's been wild. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I like, you know, make eye contact like, hey, we're all helping each other out here. But that's not actually how it goes. It's like really avoiding each other. And it reminds me of what homeless people say once they're housed. It's like, because that's what it's like to be homeless all the time. People don't look at you. They treat you like you have a virus, you have a leprosy. You know, it's like avoidance. People who are housed after a while say, I'm getting a little calmer. I'm finally beginning to forgive people for not even looking at me when I was out there all that time. So let's look at people. Let's look at them in the eye and say, how are you? Can I help you? Can I get you a cup of coffee? You need a dollar. You know, like these are people. It's us. It's us on a really bad day. That could literally happen to us. It's us with a lot of, you know, a lot of bad luck. Not because you're a bad person, you know, you lost your job or you got kicked out of the last place the landlord converted or you have mental illness and you got to the hospital and by the time you went back to the place you were renting, it was gone. Mm. So I think awareness that there's a solution and advocating for it is one thing, but just on a day-to-day basis, saying hello to people and how are you? Don't, don't have to give them anything. Just give them a smile. Give them a look. Give them an acknowledgement. I see you. I feel for you. Would be a gift. I love that you're saying this. And, you know, I have the pleasure and honor to have you on video. And your whole face lit up when you said that. So I really got the passion and the compassion with which you say hello. Right? Like your your eyes were smiling in the hello. And it made me think about the times that I have said hello that I've been, it was a cold hello. It's like, oh, I see you, but I'm not, I'm not going to get too close. I'm not going right. to be too warm. I'm not going to be too connected. Well, I think as a woman, and I think about most homeless people as being men, there's the, and being a sexual trauma survivor, there, it feels like a personal danger. Right, right. To look right. a person I don't know in the eye. And, and also I was raised in the Bronx, right? So that doesn't help. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> 
yeah. first 10 years, right? right. So uh, I was raised in the Bronx in the 80s where, you know, child pornography was a thing. So there's just a feeling of, of danger yeah. and lack of safety in connecting with a stranger. And that would be any stranger, regardless of, of condition. And then I think yeah. the poverty probably adds a level of fear. And it's interesting for me to name that because I've been in the work I've been for so long, but it's just, and I think there's a middle-class obsession with, because I'm better off with you, you want what I have, so I can't trust you because you want what I have. Mm -hmm. You want my stuff. And I think it just comes back to, you know, in a lot of prior episodes, we've talked about how capitalism permeates our thinking. And it's this whole like funky thinking, which I don't think anyone's immune from. I'm not immune from it. And I'm becoming more aware of it as the show progresses, that if we say people come before profit, we have to behave like people become before profit. So if every life is sacred, which is something I love to say, then I have to be willing to acknowledge every single human being on the street. Because that's what it means to say you're sacred, you're important to me. And Whatever my feelings are about you having a rough day, rough life, rough piece of your life, rough phase of your life, I honor you because you're alive. Right. And that's what I'd but love to see our society go towards. If that's the goal, honoring someone because every life is sacred, definitely flies in the face of the way that we typically think about these things in terms of cost effectiveness and who are the high service utilizers. We start to talk about people in these commodity terms, and it's not unusual when you're talking about homelessness, when you're trying to persuade people to say, hey, we have a program here that can end homelessness in your community. Inevitably, there's a question about what will this cost us? You know, like, it's as if, you mean, if it costs money, we shouldn't do it? Mm. You know, like, we have an illness, we have a terrible mental health addiction, health, social, public health illness, we can fix it. It's like, well, what's the price? In this country where wealth is not distributed the way uh, it should be. So and then it begins to shape our thinking about the value of people is, are they a burden to us financially? It just warps, it creates the us and them. There's many ways. I mean, we've seen in broad daylight this three and a half years of this horrible administration, the factionalism, the divisiveness and all of that, the racism. And so I think we have to mindfully fight against that because that's the mainstream message all the time. And I think what I'm discovering in this conversation, mindfully fight against that outwardly, but inwardly as well. Because us, oh, yeah. like liberals or progressives, are not immune. Like in the way we don't look at some people, just like in little things, we're not immune from that grand scheme culture of you're disposable, right? right. I can let right. you go. I cannot care about you. And we see it a lot in the conversations around essentials today, right? And I think part of what's challenging around liberal and progressive circles is that we're often willing to go to bat for how wrong conservatives are and how they speak about people. But then in our actions, we're not necessarily doing something different. Like our daily actions reflect the same. So how can we look at ourselves and actually be willing to look at the class bias 
right? And there's, of course, race bias as well there. But in particular, we're talking about class bias in ourselves and how we acknowledge or fail to acknowledge other human beings on our path. Any final thoughts before we close? I think that for me, this conversation we're having is something sort of of a life work for me. I've been doing this for quite some time, you know, and one of the challenges is to sort of, how do we keep hope alive? Because the battle will be long. And so I think to find ways every day that uh, sort of sharpen the practice so that it's not something that you just do once in a while, but you sort of live it out day by day in some small way, a reminder to, to touch on the fact that we're embarked on a mission to change life for the better for all of us. I mean, that's the thing that often gets lost about these conversations about homelessness. We're talking about the people on the street, but all of these ways that we shut down, that we cut off our own humanity to be able to walk past homeless people comfortably, it's costing us something. It's we're yes. making ourselves smaller. We're making ourselves less than who we are as human beings. We're being molded by the media messages of, you know, these people are worthy, these people are not worthy. So it, fixing this is not just about fixing the problem for the people on the street. The people on the street represent a much larger problem of our oneness and how it gets in the way and how it creates an us and them world, which really traps all of us. Love it. So, Dr. Simbaris, thank you so much for being our guest today. And Dr. Simbaris will come back, as will uh, Iqbal Hai and Erica Stewart, who are our guests this month. And uh, Erica's an activist, and Iqbal is a city planner. So we'll get to look at that bigger perspective and talk more about solutions, because we've talked uh, also a lot about uh, constraints. How can people get in touch with you? How can people follow your work? Pathwayshousingfirst.org. Pathwayshousingfirst.org. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Rita. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Pleasure was all mine. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.